Hi, I'm Jimmy Nugent, and I am looking for purpose. For as long as I've been alive, I've had someone in my life asking me, what are you looking for? It started out as my mom, and now it's my wife, Courtney. But this year, I've been looking for something they can't help me find. So I'm setting out to talk to my friends, new and old, about life, passion, purpose, and honestly, whatever else comes up, and to ask what I hope is the simple question so I can stop looking. What are you looking for? Hello, and welcome to What Are You Looking For? We are into episode three, my third conversation, and this week we've got another good one. I want to take a second before we get started to thank everyone who has tuned in and given feedback these first few episodes. This has been a really fun journey for me, and I'm really stoked to hear that some of you are finding some value in these conversations. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the show to stay up to date and never miss an episode. In the new year, we've got some really exciting guests that I think we can learn a lot from. All right, enough shameless plugging of my show. Today, we've got my good friend, former skeleton teammate and roommate, Jimmy Nugent. Jimmy is a Massachusetts kid. He loves Boston sports and his family, just like any good Bostonian. Is that the right word? Bostonian? It sounds right, but I don't know. Jimmy and I came into Skeleton at the same time, and our journeys were kind of parallel, leaving right around the same time. He is dedicated to helping others get better both on the football field and in life in general. He's extremely honest, and I appreciate him for that. We talk about sports, mental health, and the recent IVF journey he and his wife have walked in order to start a family. We did forget to talk about the fact that Jimmy was on a nationally televised chocolate milk commercial. We missed that one. It'll be in the show notes. So let's not delay any longer. Here's my conversation with my good friend, Jimmy Nugent. Jimmy, how's it going, man? It's good to see you. It's good to see you as well, Mike. Good to see you as well. It's been a long time. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. I'm excited to chat with you about uh, how we got to know each other, Skeleton, and uh, what you're up to now. Um, Yeah. You're a good dude. It's good to see you. No, it's it's been a long time, even prior to Skeleton. You know, it was good to see you last year at our wedding. Um, that that was fun, and you know, we I, I talked to Sarah all the time. You know, we got to make our way out to Wisconsin to see you. Hey, the message is right back at you guys. We want to get out that way. I want to get Courtney up to Lake Placid, anyways, but uh, you know, show around up there. But uh, yeah, we we always talk about wanting to come out to New York and and uh, Connecticut and see you guys. You have a place to stay, you know that. Oh, same. Right back at you. We got a guest room with your name on it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, hey, man. Um, I got a chance to talk to Veronica in episode one, and that was a lot of fun, kind of reconnecting with her about skeleton and life sense and and hear about how she's doing and, and her Jimmy. Um, so it's, it's good to chat with uh, my former skeleton roommate and teammate, uh, Jimmy today. Um, Hey, one of the questions that I asked Veronica that I thought was really fun, because I guess I I didn't remember her answer, but I want to ask you yours. How did you even get into skeleton? So we met back in like like 2014, I think. Um, 
Yeah. Had a skeleton combine. Yeah. With and Don Haas telling us. Yeah. Yeah. Don Haas telling us that we had uh, a place on the development program and that maybe we should consider being roommates or something for when we move out. But mm-hmm. uh, how, how did you get into skeleton? So, um, one of our teammates at the time on when we were both on, uh, the, the development team, Kyle Brown, All right, Kyle Brown was one of the up and coming kind of sliders at the time during, I think 2012, I think it was 2012, um, at college, I had to do a summer internship. So I did a summer internship with uh, Mike Boyle, strength and conditioning. And that's mm-hmm. where I met Kyle. All right. So that's where I met Kyle. He was a coach there and he was kind of, he was in my stage where I was when I finished college, right? He was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And I kind of became friends with him and I followed his journey through skeleton. And so I knew of skeleton through him. And so in 2014, true story, I'm laying in bed, Sochi, uh, Sochi's on and I see skeleton and I'm like, Oh, I know this sport. And I'm talking to one of my good buddies. I'm texting him. I'm like, hey, put this on right now. And we're both watching it. And I said to him, I think I could be good at this. And he goes, I think you could be too. And then I finished watching uh, Matt Antoine uh, do his run. And I looked up online on Team USA how to kind of get involved and signed up. I sent in my athletic resume. And next, you know, a week later, get an email from Don Haas inviting me to a camp. And then the rest is history. So, you know, hmm. the way the way I got into it was literally in bed, seeing it on TV and just saying to one of my friends, I think I can be good at this. Yeah. And uh, you did end up being good at this. That was all right. It was it was it, it was OK. You know, there was there was definitely parts of it that were that, that, that were a strength for me and then others were not so much. But it was fun. It, it was a fun time in my life where, you know, had I not done it, my life path trajectory would have been completely different. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't have you know been to some of the places that I was fortunate enough to go to. I wouldn't have grown up as fast as I did. Um, you know, and I wouldn't have met some of the people that I met, you know, so I was very fortunate to kind of have gone through that path in my life to kind of have that as a part of my life. Because again, you know, it's, it's a part of your life where, you know, sometimes when you look back on it, you think, oh, man, I wasted X amount of years doing it. But when you really look back on it, you know, I, I look at kind of the memories and the, the experiences that I kind of had because that ultimately kind of shaped me into the person I became today. Yeah, definitely. So you were interning at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. What, what was your athletic background prior to that that made you see – uh, skeleton on the TV in the Olympics and think, um, maybe I can be good at this. Um, I, I played college football, uh, division three football at Endicott college in Beverly, Massachusetts. Um, you know, I, I only started playing football in high school, right? I didn't play any like organized sports up until high school. I got to high school, I started playing football. Uh, I started wrestling and I was on the track team. And that was, those were my main three sports that I kind of competed in, in track. I didn't, I didn't step foot on the track, so to speak. I was a pole vaulter. So, mm. you know, I had that kind of sense of, you know, that daredevilness 
where I would put my body in harm's way. I mean, I guess you could say that with football as well, um, because, you know, every single play is almost like a car crash. Um, and, you know, I think parts of each sport kind of helped me in skeleton in some, some type of way. That's wild to me to hear that you weren't actually involved in organized sports until high school because um, you are a phenomenal athlete. Like, uh, truly, you, you, when we were doing skeleton, I was always really impressed with your athleticism. Um, so that's, that's wild. I didn't actually know that. And so you go on, you, you pick up football in high school and you end up making it to D3. You were a great pole vaulter. And then um, you were an incredibly fast sprinter uh, when, when we did our combines and, and just uh, our pushes for skeleton. You were always a really impressive, explosive athlete, really strong in the weight room. Um, so it's wild to hear that y- your training age, so to speak, was maybe not that, that old at that time. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and I think, like you said, right, you mentioned training age even my like athletic age because I didn't really tap into anything until I, I probably wasn't a great athlete until, you know, going into my senior year of college. Right. Even, even playing football throughout high school. Right. I don't think I became a real football player until after my freshman year of college, really understanding what football was. Right. Cause again, I, again, like I never played anything organized before. Right. I didn't really know what football was. So I played four years of high school and you know, I ended up going to play, you know, college football is division three, but you know, college football is college football, you know? Um, and like you said, my training age was still very, very young. So obviously I, I wasn't the most physically imposing person. Uh, and so, you know, my thought process going into any sport was okay. If, if there's one thing that I can control, it's, you know, being in the weight room, right? Being very, very strong, right? I, I'm, I was in high school, I was about five, 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 six, like a buck 60, right? But I knew if I was strong enough in the weight room, you know, I can outwork kids and outwork people and, and, and that would set me apart. Um, and so, you know, that's where I really, really made kind of, I, I put my eggs into being in the weight room and, and, trying to get faster, stronger, whatever I could, cause I wasn't able to get taller. Um, so mm-hmm. the next best thing that I did was, Hey, be in the weight room and don't ever get outworked by somebody else. You know, uh, there's a lot of people that, that say those kinds of things, putting in the work and, and not, not being outworked by others. You are definitely one of the people I've met where those aren't just words. Those are, 100% actions. And, and I think anybody that knows you and has seen your athletic career and your growth as an athlete would, would say the same. You were certainly one of the hardest workers I was around during, during my short stint with Skeleton. And, and I, was, I was really lucky, I think, to be a roommate of yours so often, um, whether that was in the training center or the apartment we shared mm-hmm. our first season because I learned a lot from how organized and methodical you were. You, you were definitely a person of routines and, uh, you got things done and were always organized in, in where you set your gear, the things you ate, the things you put into your body. You always had a rhyme and reason for it and, and a routine. 
I feel like that kind of routine and structure is something that could help me or it did help me as an athlete and and probably some of the folks listening because I think there's a lot of mental clarity in having your life organized in that way when when you've got high level goals. Um, so I'm curious, did did someone teach you that or was it something you decided was important to you? I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, people saying that they want to do things, people saying that, you know, they don't want to get outworked and right. It's, you know, you, you hear, you know, words, you know, action over words, right. To be actually, you know, say you want to do something, what are you going to do about it? What can you control to kind of put you in a position to be successful in whatever you want to do? Right. Like there's a lot of things that people can do to set them up for success. And I always thought to myself, you know, if there's something that I can control, right, it's how I can control my routine, right? How I can control what I, what I ate. Um, because like you said, right, we had high level goals, right? You know, going into skeleton as, as naive as we were, um, you know, we were saying, Hey, that's, we want to make the Olympics. We want to make the Olympics. Right. So if I was gonna, you know, be somebody who makes the Olympics, right. I was thinking, what would somebody who would make the Olympics do, right? How would they train, right? How would they set their days up, right? Everything is so meticulous and scheduled, detailed and organized that, you know, you need to follow that. And that's how you're going to get there, right? Obviously things will change. Um, but that was something that, you know, if I can control it, I'm going to do that, right? I, I can't control the weather. I can't control, you know, our practice times, but I can control what time I get up. I can control, you know, when I go work out. Um, I can control when I go to sleep, you know, any little things that I was able to control. I'd rather have that be in my sole responsibility and something that I can decide um, rather than have someone else decide that for me, you know, and I don't think that was something that I was ever I don't think I taught that myself. I think it was just kind of the work ethic that I saw my parents have when they were growing up. I mean, they were they were first generation Americans. They came over here not knowing a lick of English. Um, you know, they came over here tried to try to you know give our family a better life, and I saw that kind of firsthand with my with my mom. You know, so you know that was a big thing for me seeing that always trying to work hard. You know, and you know, I don't think she ever physically or said out loud to me, hey, this is how things have to be. But just by seeing how hard she worked, I think naturally, you know, I kind of saw that and was like, okay, I'll just try to, you know, copy that, copy that work ethic and, and how hard she worked for her goals uh, to kind of give us a successful life. You know, just kind of translated that to like how I viewed athletics. You know, I think that hearing hearing you say that, it makes a lot of sense. Some of the things that I was able to witness just being around you, you know, it, being the child of of immigrants and, and the way that you carried yourself, you definitely had like a no excuses kind of mentality. I mean, we, we weren't funded athletes. It was always a nice surprise when, when we got a little bit of funding, whether that was for just some meals or, or room and board at the, the training center for a week or two. But I... I as you were talking, I was re- remembering. So, so I say all that we had to work, whether that was in season or for sure out of season. I, I remember during some of those off seasons, seeing on your, your Instagram stories, the, the time clock in your car when you were getting up and, and getting your day started, because I think you were working as a bartender at a concert venue or training 
people in a gym and and it wasn't uncommon for for that uh that time clock to be still in the dark hours of the morning and and so you were waking up with these huge goals and aspirations and not making excuses no matter what time of day your day had to start or what the work day was like yesterday it makes a lot of sense hearing hearing kind of your grow your your growing up and your journey as a kid and and then thinking about that no and and that's what it was right like you know us as not funded athletes to have to work in the off season but also work and make time to to work out ourselves you know um you know i i worked at a gym where i would train clients in the morning at like 4 30 5 a.m i ran my own strength and conditioning camp at my high school where i would train college kids and then you know girls soccer girls field hockey teams i would go back to the gym train any clients in the middle of the days you know if there was time to work out myself i would do that go back to the gym train more clients and then at night sometimes i would get up i would get up to where the concert venue was and I would bartend until, you know, sometimes one o'clock, two o'clock at night to go home to do it all over again. Right. So uh, it's it was a grind. Right. It was a grind. You know, any time that I was able to squeeze in a workout, I would do that. Right. There was times where, you know, I maybe had like two hours of sleep and I would go and train again. And now looking back on it, I'm just like, man, was that great for my body to do that? Probably not. But you said we just had those high goals that we really really wanted to accomplish and if that's what needed to be done it was like okay that's what i have to do to you know reach that goal of what i wanted the goal that i set out to have yeah yeah and i i don't think like um i bet if you you pulled most people with olympic aspirations this isn't even that strange of a story the the working hours just to try and fund your your dream and your journey you know, it takes that high level dedication and unfortunately a lot of sacrifices to financially make the the dream keep going. And, and, and it is a tough balance between, you know, in the back of your mind, you know, oh, I probably need more sleep and rest and recovery, but you know, unfortunately you need money and you need training. And yeah. those are kind of two things that you just, you couldn't really sacrifice during the journey. And, and so I was always impressed with and, and learned a lot and inspired by you as a teammate, just kind of knowing what you were doing on the other side of the country from me to keep your journey going was always just kind of a, a good motivation for, for keeping mine going um, you know, and, and, and making those choices. No. And, you know, and to put stuff like that on Instagram or put that on my stories, it wasn't like to, it was never to like boast, Hey, this is what I'm doing, right? Like you, you guys mm-hmm. are sleeping half. So you guys are sleeping at this hour, and I'm getting up here, working out, training, doing whatever, working, right? It was more or less, hey, you know, I'm not going to be outworked, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that, and I know that I had teammates in you, I had teammates in Jake Bergstrom, right? Like you guys are teammates, but also at the same time, it's just like you see that, and it's like, man, that's going to motivate me to work in the off season, off season as well, right. To show, you know, the other, you know, high level national team athletes that, Hey, like I'm coming for you too. Right. And it's like, Hey, if that kid's working that much harder, man, I got to push myself to work as well. Right. Because at the end of the day, yeah, we're all teammates and 
only two or three people make it on each tour, right? So if I'm able to do that and push the entire program to get better, push other athletes to get better, I'd rather do that and push everybody, right? Because then at the end of the day, it's a, it's, it's a team, right? We're all competing. It doesn't say our last name on our uniform or anything. It says three letters and it says USA, right? So if I can do that and push our program to improve, push our other athletes to improve, I think I'm doing a good job, you know, by doing that and helping the program and as well as helping, you know, my own self. Yeah, and you are, I would definitely agree with that. You are definitely a person who makes those around you better, uh, whether whether that is with, actually using your words and encouraging people. You are definitely an encourager and you'll, you'll, uh, help others. You know, our, our sport was kind of independent, you know, it's only one person on the sled. And like you said, there's only a couple spots on each tour. So it was kind of a balance of, of being independent and an individual sport, but also remaining teammates. But, you know, like I was saying, you, you were always encouraging with your words to your teammates, but but also just your actions. I think you did inspire and motivate others just just by being us being able to be around you in the way that you handled and did things and kept pushing through adversity and success. And yeah, I would definitely say you make the rooms you're in better, and and that's that's awesome. That's oh, one of your best you. qualities. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. Appreciate that. I, I always, you know. Whatever I thought or wherever I do like coach or anything, right, or whatever job I go to, I always enter that job with the same mindset of when I leave this job, when I leave this team, when I leave this place, I want to leave it better than I found it, right? So I want to be able to make an impact in whatever way it is, right? Say I just, I work at Dunkin' Donuts for whatever it is, right? I work at Dunkin' Donuts. Whenever I leave Dunkin' Donuts, I want to make sure that place is better than when I got there, right? What impact can I leave there? What impact can I make that makes that place better after I'm gone, right? I want them to be like, hey, we made this one change or whatever it was that made our operation much better, right? So, and I, and I take that with wherever I go. If I take that in the job setting, I take that with teams that I coach, uh, players individually that I coach, right? I want to make them better after I leave them. So, you know, and I think that can be kind of applied to anything, right? It can be uh, applied to the corporate world, jobs, schools, whatever it is, right? If you have that mindset of leaving the place better than you found it, you know, I I think, I think you got a a good mindset and, you know, you're, you're thinking of not just yourself, but thinking of the future because, you know, people are going to leave, Right when I pass, whenever I do, right, I want good things to be said about me, right? I don't want to just be like, oh, here he is. He's over, done with, right? He's dead. This is tombstone. It is what it is, right? I want there to be kind of a reason that, you know, I was on this earth and that was a purpose, right? So, and I think, you know, this podcast, like there's, when when you had come up with this idea of what are you looking for, right? That's, I'm still kind of figuring that out. Right. It's just like, what are you looking for? Right. And, and I think the biggest thing that I still search for is like, all right, purpose. Like that's what I'm looking for. Right. What's my purpose? Right. Because everybody has one, regardless if you know what it is or not, you know, like what is your purpose on this, on this earth? Right. So, and everybody's is different. Right. Everybody's is different. And so that's kind of how I view life 
since I've moved on from skeleton, because obviously, you know, you, you leave skeleton, you know, our careers were done. And it's like, you're in that kind of gray area, that in between where you're just like, what do I do now? Right, Cause all you've known is like that structure. All you've known is working out and all that. And so now you finish it and you're just like, man, I'm just sitting around like waiting to figure out something. Oh, do I go work out? Like, no, I don't have to work out. And so, you know, that purpose of like, what else is out there, you know, and, and I'm still trying to find that sometimes, you know, I sit back and it's like, did I find this purpose or is there more to it? Right. Is there something more that I can do? You know, and there's days, obviously you wake up and you, you have good days where you're like, okay, I found my purpose. And then there's days you wake up and you're just having a bad day and you're like, oh man, like what else is there? So it's one of those things where, you know, if you surround yourself with a good circle, you know, you have people that you trust, people that, you know, when you go to with problems and stuff, they're there to listen. Um, and I think that, 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 that comes into a big play of kind of finding what you're looking for, right? Because to be able to have people to go to, to talk to, whether regardless if it's anything, right, good, negative, bad, whatever it is, right? Just having people around you that support you unconditionally, I think that is a big, big thing, you know, nowadays, especially with athletes or even not athletes, right? Just just having somebody there. I think I think mental health has been a big thing now, especially with like people, especially nowadays, even with like COVID, right? Like COVID happened and everybody was home and, you know, just not knowing what to do. Um, and it was a big transition in, in on our lives right? Like the entire world just shut down. Right. And it's interesting because um, the, the kids that the seniors that I just worked with this year, they were in high school for their freshman year. COVID happened. Now they're in that post COVID world. So they experienced high school in two different like ways where it was like pre COVID where nothing was wrong COVID. And then now dealing with it after. Right. So it's just like, it's a transition kind of stage a little bit. And like, I think the world is kind of getting back to that a little bit, but you know, it's still there, you know, and people still reference it. I just kind of jumped around there and, and a couple of different, my brain just scattered there. But yeah, I don't even remember what I was going on there. And then I just went on that tangent, but. No, on. I think you touched on a lot of good things there. And I think you, you said a lot in there and, and I want to go back. Um, you were talking about the idea of leaving it better than you found it. And, and I think again, Jimmy, that's one of those things that a lot of people say, but you again, being who you are an extremely dedicated person, where does that come from for you? What, what drives the idea of leaving it better than you found it? Because like you said, it's, it's so easy, especially at work for our careers to just only be thinking about ourselves, our next move. But I really do think that whether it's as a team athlete or in your career post-skeleton, you are somebody who embodies trying to leave it better than you found it. And that's influencing others to also leave it better than they found it. And, and together, by all increasing our awareness of those around us and the mission, things get a little bit better. Where does that come from? Why, why are you driven by that? That was something that I learned in college. You know, whenever we went on an away game, Right. Like we obviously the the, uh, the other team gives us a locker room and our coaches would always say, leave it better than you found it. Right. So pick up our trash, pick up, you know, clean everything up. 
right? So it, it, it might be spotless before we get in there, right? When we leave, right, leave it better than we found it, right? Put the chairs away neatly, right? Just don't throw your tape or garbage. Don't leave it on the ground, right? Leave it better than you found it. And that was a saying that I was like, hey, like, I, I heard it. And it's just like, man, that can apply to so many different things, right? And so I kind of just took that and apply that to, you know, kind of anything that I ever did was kind of, hey, leave it better than I found it, right? So I, I think if, like I said, like you have that mindset going into things, it kind of changes the way you think a little bit. Instead of trying to kind of get the most out of something for your own self, you look at it from a different lens of like, okay, how can I do something? But that's that's going to be beneficial to me, but it's also going to affect everybody else around me afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely, you know, especially the scenario you just said, you know, as a kid, you go on a field trip or whatever. And, you know, your teacher says it about the bus or whatever. We we've all heard, leave it better than you found it, but to actually embody it and take action to live it is, yeah, it's just a, it's a character thing. It's, it's the, like, who are you when no one's around? Um, yep. and, and I think you are somebody who actually embodies that. And I think that's really inspiring. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, you know, it's, you, you can say it's character, but like you said, right. It's like how you act when you know, no one's around. Right. It's, I think JJ Watt said it, like he says, what do you say? No, there's, there's a quote or something. It's like, I forget what it is. Something about like lions don't worry about the opinions of sheep or something like that. Mm-hmm. But like you, you look at that and you're like, you worry about the things that you worry about, right? And like everything else, the outside noise will kind of just take care of itself. Right. And if you inspire even just like one person takes note of you picking up your teammates tape or just straightening up a little bit for another five seconds after the whole team's out of the the locker room, if, if even one person takes note of that and then starts to just embody that a little bit more, it's like, I think, you know, it sounds so silly, but it's just like, I think that's the things that those are the things that's going to save the world, you know, <laughs> like, no, ab- absolutely. It's, it's not like one big thing. It's just everybody taking a couple extra seconds to think about how is this going to affect somebody else? If I just do the right thing right now. No, exactly. And that, and that's what it is, right? Like you said, like it takes one, it takes you to, to kind of affect one person, right? If, if I can reach one person and, you know, change them, not really change them, but like just, affect them right i've 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 found my purpose right i've been i've been able to touch one person where i was able to get them to think differently or to do something differently or to pick something up you know just it just takes one person that's all it is sometimes leave it better than you found it is something we have all heard we are faced with probably a million different tiny decisions every day. And while you shouldn't expect perfection of yourself in all of those decisions, striving to just continuously do the right thing is going to move the world further. If we live that motto of leave it better than you found it just a little bit, we might not change the world ourselves, but we can through the ripple effect of others seeking to do the same in their life and in their circle.
you touched on uh, mental health a little bit uh, a bit ago and <laughs> and what that was like in sports and then obviously li- life after sports. I'm curious, like, I know kind of my thoughts on it, but did you feel like mental health got talked about like at all really when we were competing in skeleton? Was, was that like a thing? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And and I think, I think especially in, in that sport specifically in skeleton, you, know, you had mentioned like it's, it's very individual, right? There's only one person on the sled, but you're, you're involved in a team. Right. And so it's just like, it's, oh, it's like, it's kind of like high schoolish where it's just like you have clicks and it's like very individual base and like you go off and you hang out with them, but you're also competing against them. And it's just like, you know, are, are they saying stuff behind my back? Well, things like that. Right. It's, I, I felt that it could mess with you mentally. Right. And it skeleton was so mental because you have a minute down the track by yourself, right? You have a minute down the track by yourself. And if you mess up, that was, that's on you, right? Because you were only competing against yourself, right? And it's just like, you go down the track, you have your best run, right? You have your best run, right? So it was weird going down or even waiting for results to happen because you're not necessarily rooting for somebody to mess up, right? But that's how our success was based on, based on if somebody else messed up or not, right? And, and it was a weird thing because... Somebody else messes up and you're not cheering for it, but it's just like, oh man, he messed up and that moved me up a couple of places or whatever. Man, I feel for that guy, but you're not feeling for that guy. You're just excited that you moved up. And so the mental piece of that is just like, say you're in the flip side, you're in the, you're in the other shoes where you mess up and you're like, God damn it. Like I mess up. And so now that's eating at you. Right. And so now you're just obsessing over it. Right. And everybody has their own different ways that they deal with failure you know, and especially in a sport where it's all based on your own kind of um, how you execute, how you you know drive down the track, it's all on you. And so the mental you know aspect of it could have been kind of like, I feel like now knowing what I know, that should have been a thing that was kind of provided or at least done to help, you know, athletes because, you know, that sport is so mental. Um, and you're relying on just yourself, you know, and, and it could mess people up, right? Like it's, it's, it's unfortunate, right? But, you know, I think that's a thing that could be done now to help even more because like I said, it's, you're the only one there, right? If you mess up, that's on you, right? When you do well, it's on everybody, right? You, you know, nobody's ever going to say, oh, I did this, I did that, right? You, you look at any success, and people always give credit to other people around them. But when you mess up, it's like it's just on you. Right? Nobody's going to blame, oh, my coach didn't help me with the start or my coach did my runners wrong, whatever it is, right? But it's always you give credit when you win and then you take it when you lose. You know, you put it on yourself. And I think that can be a lot for a young athlete or even an older athlete in that sport or any athlete for that matter because you can you, you can take that so hard on yourself because you know there's a lot of people that help us right especially in skeleton there's a lot of people that help us in that sport and you know when you fail it's like man you know uh, i i feel the weight of the entire country 
lit- like like figuratively because you know when you compete out there it's you know, you're representing the the US right and so when you fail it's just like man like should I be doing this right you're you're making the US look bad right again that's uh, that's things that people could be thinking about right and so you know to have somebody there to just listen and so you can at least vocalize it instead of kind of keeping it in um I think that's something that should be, you know, there or provided at least. Again, I'm not sure how, you know, it's changed now. I know the leadership has changed a lot with that program. You know, I don't keep tabs on it that much, but I do kind of see a little bit. And then when I see it, I go into a little bit of a rabbit hole and I look more into it. Um, But, you know, there's still a couple of people that we know still doing it. So I'm curious to kind of, you know, if I ever run into Austin Florian, be like, hey, how has it changed? Right. Or if it's changed, you know, so I hope it's changed for the better. Um, But, you know, I think that's one thing that I wish that we had when we were in that sport. Yeah, I I think you uh, you made made a lot of good points. And, you know, in a a sport that comes down to hundreds of seconds, like being mentally clear, I think, is just as important as um, any of the training, you know, and and as athletes, if, if that had been more of a thing, maybe, you know, whether it's us or, or just our, our teammates do better by just having that mental clarity of, of, you know, somebody asking them, because when you are looking at trying to go to the Olympics or just shooting for higher goals, you just are, um, even on your best days, living at this like small frequency of stress, you know, of, every action, everything you put into your body, every rep, every sprint, like as an athlete, I remember just thinking like each thing that I do or fail to do like matters. Like that could be the thing that could be the thing that could be the thing. And, you know, as you, as you were talking, I was also just thinking about how, like, man, I, I know you've had runs like this cause we all have, but like the, the tracks have, you know, sometimes up to 20 turns in them. And, and sometimes that mistake comes in the first 50 meters of a track. And now you've got a minute, you know, a minute plus to just think about that for the rest of the way down that nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing you do is going to bring this one back, this run back. And, and if that happens on the first day of a two day race or, uh, you know, multiple day races, it's hard not to feel like, well, what does it matter? You know, like I, you know, the, the Olympics is multiple days, four runs, you know, that's, that's a lot of pressure on four minutes of your life. And, you know, just thinking about that, you know, how, how gutting it was when, you know, you'd have just like your runners would slide out just a little bit and go into a skid or, you know, God forbid you pop out of the groove while pushing. You just Mm -hmm. have the next minute of your life to just dwell on that one. And then, you know, but you have to also regain your focus because you're about to slide at 80 miles an hour. And regardless of if the race is completely gone, you have to somehow figure out how to get focused again because you've got to get down this track safely, yep. you know, yeah. <laughs> without just crushing your body. Yeah. There's a lot of mental stru- stress in it. And and I think, you know, that's part of why I wanted to talk to some of our teammates is, is how is that going to, um, in the life after sports. Yeah. I think, I think the the neglect of that health can be detrimental. You know, and it's even, even just like, I remember 
I think it was nationals. It was nationals. My, I think our last year, the year before I stopped, I think it was like in the springtime. And obviously that's when like the, I like we'd have some warm days or whatever and I'm pushing and my sled popped out of the groove and I was able to figure out a way to get back onto my sled before curve one. And I got on safely. And like, like you said, right. I'm thinking, man, this entire run is chalked, but I have to refocus up again and make sure I get down this track safely. Right. And so to be able to kind of like have maybe five seconds of damn it, like this, is this runs for nothing now, but then to be able to take that, whatever just happened in the first five seconds, be able to flush it and get ready for the very first curve, second curve, right. To be able to get your mind like flipped right away to think, okay, let's get down safely. Right. And so that's, that's, that's a lot, right. That, that is a lot mentally to even have that, to even think like that, right. To be able to say, oh shoot, this sucks. But then change right away and be like, okay, I got to get down. Right. And I think, I think Katie Ulander said that to me when I first met her, she said something about like, you know, you push as hard as you can push. And then when you get on the sled, there's no brakes. Right. So why worry about trying to slow down, you know, just try to get down as fast as you can, you know? And I thought about that. I was like, that is true. Right. That's true. Like we're in a sport, like you said, where hundreds matter. Right. So once you're on, you shouldn't have any fear because you're trying to get down as fast as you can. Right. So how can you get down as fast as possible? Right. So like I kind of went into kind of my last couple of years with that kind of mindset of, Hey, well, how can I get down fast, but also safely at the same time? Yeah. So the end of our, our competitive skeleton careers, uh, was kind of abrupt. Um, the end of, end of mine kind of came in Park City. Uh, I got a concussion. And, you know, I, I don't think I ever really slid the same after that. I actually remember we, it was the year we drove from Utah back to New York. I was still kind of recovering. It was right around like five, four or five weeks after my concussion in Utah. And nationals was our way of getting into team trials for the following year. And the following year was going to be an Olympic year of team trials. And for me, I was like, man, I I have to slide nationals. You know, I just, I have to, I can't, I can't miss nationals. I hadn't qualified at that point or reached the markers for qualifying for team trials for the next year. And and Mm -hmm. nationals was my last chance. And, um, you know, I was, I was still recovering from that concussion. and, And I remember sliding just after you in a training run, and getting to the bottom of Lake Placid, which on its best day is a rough track, you know, known around the world as just a challenging track and a rough track to slide on. And man, I was getting to the bottom and I was dizzy. And I remember you being the one who's like, you got to stop. You got to stop. Like, you know, you, you do not look good. You're like stumbling all over. And you know, I, I obviously um, dealing with the pressures of performing and trying to again keep the dream alive. Even though I knew 2018 Olympics probably wasn't wasn't my Olympics. You know, mm-hmm. it was just wanting to be there and, and compete. You know, I, I kept pushing through that week of nationals, but that was kind of the end for me. Was was knowing like my brain took a pretty good toll 
during those couple of weeks and, and sliding never really felt comfortable again after that. You know, I always kind of dealt with feeling a little bit dizzy after, and, um, that was kind of the end of my career. What was, what was kind of like your transition from skeleton? Like it, it was weird because obviously we had that nationals and I think I had just gotten that award. I forget what the name of that award was. I got that award for like perseverance and all that stuff. Um, and I remember, I remember being in the training, uh, being in the cafeteria on like the day before or the, the day before the award was getting announced and they had already voted for who was going to get it. And I'm eating. And then Veronica is just like, are you coming to the award thing? I go, yeah, I guess. And, she, and I'm, I think it's a Sunday. I'm wearing my Patriots shirt because the Patriots are playing. And she's like, is that what you're wearing? And I was like, yeah, what's wrong with it? You know? And she was just like, oh no, just wondering, just, just curious, you know? And so obviously like she knew that I was getting the award. So she was trying to give me a heads up. Like, Hey, put something nice on, but I, <laughs> but, but I still kept it on. Right. I still kept it on. And so it's the Patriots, it is. Nice. Yeah, exactly. That is, it is nice. Um, and so, you know, obviously I get that award and it's like, Hey, like all of like the adversity that I dealt with. Right. And you know, all of the trials and tribulations and, you know, all the hard work and the sacrifice, like I get that award and I'm like, man, like everybody else does see that, right. Everybody else sees that. And it's like, okay, all that hard work pays off. Right. So I go into team trials, you know, and, and like, yeah, I, I didn't expect to, make the Olympic team in 2018, just being a part of it, like you said, was an accomplishment itself to like from where we started in the sport to where I finished, you know, obviously I didn't reach my goals, but I could say that I was part of uh, an Olympic team trial. Right. And just to be a part of that, you know, like, and I know you were trying to be a part of it and it, it was tough. Um, and then to transition out of it, because we went from Calgary to, I think park, no, we went from park city to Calgary. That's what it was. We went from park city to Calgary or it was vice versa, whatever it was. I, I didn't slide well at all. And I knew coming home that that was probably going to be it for me because I didn't make a tour. And I was like, you know, if I knew, if I knew that I wasn't going to stick around for another four years, which I already had known at that point, I know, you know, I, I can say that I was a part of Olympic team trial. You know, I, I made it that far. I can hang my hat on that. Right. I, I can be content with that, you know? And when I finished, I remember I drove Jake Miter. I think I drove Jake Miter to the airport because I was, I had moved down to uh, New York at the time uh, with Sarah and that was on the way down anyways. And I think Jake was done too, right? Jake knew that he was done. And so, you know, that car ride with him was, it was quiet, right? And we were both just kind of talking about kind of how trials went and all that. And I think we both knew that both of us were going to be done, but we didn't say it. Right. It was just kind of one of those unspoken things where we knew that we were both done. And it was a weird transition. Right. I, I get home in October and you know, I started applying for jobs. Right? I started applying for jobs, schools, gyms, all that stuff. I was hearing nothing. Right. And 
it got to a point where I'm just sitting around. I don't know what to do. I think I had, I think, and I think I drove up to Lake Placid like the week, like two weeks after. And I, cause I sold my sled. I had already sold my sled, drove up to Lake Placid, sold my sled, drove back. So it was, it was like a nine hour drive, but like that entire day, right? I get in the car early morning, drive up, sell the sled, drive back down that day. And it was weird, right? Once, and then once I got rid of that, I was like, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm done. But like I guess I was waiting for a job. Nothing was coming up. Nothing was coming up. So that really like mentally was like, what am I doing? All right. And I remember Jake actually reaching out to me and just, to, just, just checked in. He just checked in. That's all he did. He was just asking, Hey, how's it going? Right. How are you feeling? Right. Little things like that, because we we're, we were both in the same stage of our career. Just, we had just finished, didn't know what was going on. And it was, it was nice to have somebody in that same shoes as me because, again, I don't think I, you know, me and Jake were were cordial during uh, when we competed, you know. But then, like, after, like, we definitely talked more after we uh, finished competing, you know. And, like, you know, I, I, him and his wife actually sent me and Sarah a gift for, you know, once they found out that we were having a baby, right. Uh, and it's just, like, little things like that. Right. And it's just like, man, he's a good dude. I wish I had talked to him more when we were competing because, again, he was quiet. Right. Jake was quiet. He always kind of stuck to himself. Um, But when he was around other people, he would come out of his shell. And that was like the biggest thing. It was just like even as like new athletes. Right. We're sitting in the start house and you have those older athletes that have been around come in and you're just like, oh, my God, like, do I talk to them? Like, do I am I am I annoying to them? Right. And then. By the time we got to that point in our careers, you had those younger athletes come in and you had them kind of looking at you the exact same way we looked at those other athletes. I remember when we got up there, I remember seeing, I think it was Mike Delman. Like he's up there and then we're watching him and we're like, oh my God, like (laughs) how is he getting down so fast? You know? And so it's just like, it's weird, like the cycle of it. You know, so I remember, I think in our last year, that's when they brought in like Chris Strupp, Daniel Barefoot, all those like fast pushing athletes. And I think Daniel's on the national team right now. Like he's doing well for himself. Right. So it's just like they brought in all those guys. And right. So it's like that same thing where it's just like. It's just that weird mix of, hey, it's an individual sport, but there's people there competing, gunning for your spot. You know, they're looking at you like, Hey, I'm going to beat you out. This is like, all right, bring it on. So it's competition, right? Competition is good for anything. Competition brings out the best in everybody, you know, but it, it was a weird transition. You know, I think mentally, I think that's where it's just like, what, like, what am I like, like this podcast, what am I looking for? Right. I didn't know what I was looking for. And I think I stumbled across working at uh, working my first college football uh, position at uh, Western Connecticut. I think that was, yeah, it was at Western Connecticut. Um, and then from there, from there I went to Endicott and then I came back to New York at Carmel High School. I was there for three years, now New Canaan and the rest is history. But like that's kind of where like my journey took me with coaching wise. Cause like I knew that I wanted to coach and I knew that I wanted to give back 
you know, and, and find my purpose and, and trying to like connect with kids and, and trying to help kids because right. Like my athletic career, I didn't do anything until high school and I was blessed to have very, very you know, great high school football coaches and just coaches for that matter. Guys that I still talk to, to these, to this day, right. Guys that I still text randomly, um, and just kind of say, you know, Merry Christmas, right. Little things like that, because, you know, those coaches impacted me in a way that, you know, they'll never know. And I want to be that for, you know, this next group of kids growing up because there's so much that they've had to deal with that, you know, all, all it takes sometimes is, you know, just some, a coach saying that, Hey, I believe in you. Right. And that, you know, those four words are very, very powerful, especially like to, to younger kids in this generation now. Right. Because it's different now. Right. It's, it's very different, you know? And so, to tell somebody that, Hey, I believe in you. Right. I tell my kids every single week, right before the game, I tell my kids, Hey, I love you guys, you know, because it's, I think it's important to not really like there's that stigma between, right. You guys can't say, I love you. Right. But you know, to, to break that down because to say that to kids, to let them know that I care about them. Right. It's very important because some, like sometimes, you know, their home life, sometimes you don't. Right. So sometimes they need that little push of encouragement. Sometimes they need somebody telling them that they love them, you know, to turn around their day. Right. And one thing that I, that I started doing last year, even when I was at Carmel, I, when the kids would warm up, I went through each single warm up line and I would high five every single kid on the team. Not because, you know, I did it, I did it so I would kind of get to know the kids. But I did it so every kid, so I would say something to every single kid every day, right? So, so they can't be like, hey, I've never talked to this coach in my life, right? So something simple is just going through and high-fiving kid, right? Saying, hey, how's it going, right? Every single day. And it got to a point where, you know, kids would be like, coach, I didn't get my high-five today. Like halfway through practice, coach, I didn't get my high-fives. Here you go. You know, and, and and it's special, right? And it's special. It's a little tiny thing, but it goes a long way because, you know, our season just ended last week. And, you know, I, I gave one of the captains a high five and he was just like, this is the last one. You know, and he told me, he told me last Saturday, he goes, you know, he looked forward, you know, to that high five every single day. You know, and it's just like making that impact right there. It's just like, it's just a high five, but it's it's so much more than that. Right. So it's just a little tiny gesture that goes a long way. And it's just like, hey, this brightened my day up every single day you did this. You know, so it's just like, all right, there's that purpose. There's that purpose that I was looking for. Yeah. You know, and I, that transition from skeleton sounds a little bit like mine. You, you kind of get done and you're like, now what? You know, I thought this was going to be the next 10, 10 years of my life. <laughs> and here we sit now one, one day, you know, two weeks ago, I didn't think it was over. And today I'm sitting here and it's over. And so you find that purpose and you moved on to coaching and, uh, you know, you, you, you have been a part of a lot of successful teams. You have coached in the college level now and as well, and have coached on multiple state championship winning high school teams you know you you just shared you love that connection with with your athletes and and i think that's so 
so awesome. And, and, um, again, just so much respect to you, uh, for the way that you carry yourself and do things, just making each of those kids feel cared about. And, uh, like you said, regardless of their home life, they, they just know that somebody sees them. And, you know, I think especially in big programs, like a football team where mm-hmm. some, some of your athletes probably aren't starters and, uh, don't get much playing time, but to still have some kind of connection to the coach, I think is just incredible. You know, it's so easy as a coach to probably just focus on your, your stars and your main players. And, you know, like you kind of mentioned with us, you know, if, if, athlete every year there's new athletes and Mm -hmm. there's new competition for those spots coming in for for your job and you know but but not forgetting to just make that connection you know what do you what do you love about coaching i think i think the connection right because like you said right it's easy for coaches to just focus on their their best players right but to be able to coach your best players as if you're coaching, you know, the, the last player on the bench, you know, I think as long as you coach those best players hard, if not harder, that's going to push those younger kids to see that they see that they're not like, okay, coach is favoring this player, right? Because that forces, you know, your best player to practice at the level that you want them to practice at. Right. And if younger kids see that, oh, he's yelling at him, just like the way he's yelling at me, right. You can't like you can't say that you're favoring one person or another, right? Because at some point, right, that star captain, that star player, they're going to graduate, and who's left, right? The kids that you might have not worked with. So to be able to work with every single kid, to be able to make an impact with every single kid, it's going to help your program, you know, the development of your program, right? To show interest in that, right? We, I don't coach the freshmen. But I go to as many games as I can because I know that is the future of the program, right? So when they see that, oh, Coach, Coach Nugent is, is coming to our games, he's showing interest in us, they're going to be like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice. I'm going to play much harder because he's there, right? I want to make a good impression on him, right? And, and I think coaching, I think, I think the best thing about it is every single year is different and you don't know what you're going to get, right? You, can, you might have an idea of what you're going to get, but... You know, it changes weekly. You know, it changes every single year. You don't know what type of team you're going to have. You don't know the makeup of your team because it, cha- it changes every year. Kids leave, kids graduate, um, kids show up and surprise you that you weren't even thinking of, right? And and so that's the beauty of it because it's it's almost like an art because you're kind of piecing everything together. You're putting people in places, and you know, football is a sport where it's just like. You have 11 guys out there, right? And 11 responsibilities, right? And you need all 11 to do everything perfectly so a play can look seamless, so everything can look perfect, right? It's hard to achieve perfection, but when, you know, everything is done correctly, you have all 11 guys doing the right thing, it's a beautiful thing, right? It's it's a beautiful thing when something just looks exactly the way you're supposed to run it, right? Um you know, and, and it comes down to practice. It comes down to preparation. You know, I, I think there was a quote last weekend where, you know, I had the, it was just like, when pressure, when pressure comes, right, you come to the level of your preparation, right? And so if you're prepared for it, you know, there, there is no pressure because you've done it a million times, 
right? But when your know, pressure arises and you haven't been prepared for it, then you're going to see that. It, you, people see right through it. People see that, oh, those guys aren't prepared, right? And so I think preparation and putting kids into, you know, different scenarios that they never think they might be in until, you know, it happens in the game is, is crazy, right? It's, it's, it's one of those things where as football coaches, like what scenarios can we put our kids in? So when it happens in a game, you know, that doesn't worry them. And I think it was um, not last week, but the week before, I think we, it was a tie game, eight, eight. We get the ball back with 29 seconds to go. And we come and, and it's a tie game, right? But we practice these scenarios every single week, right? It's just like we throw out, hey, we're down by three points. We're down by a touchdown, right? And we got to go down and score, right? But it's a tie game. There's 29 seconds left. We go down and now we're trying to attempt a 47-yard field goal. And we have specific plays to draw teams offsides. And we draw the team offsides two plays in a row on the same thing. And so now instead of a 47-yard field goal, we're doing a 37-yard field goal, and our kid kicks it for the win to send us to the state championship game. And it's just like, people are like, how do you guys practice that? And it's just like, we don't know. We just practice weird scenarios where if we need it, kids have been in it before. Kids know what they're doing. It's not something that we just drew up on the ground during a timeout and say, hey, we think this is going to work. right? It's like, hey, we practiced this before. Right. And, and that's the thing that, you know, you you hear me saying on the sidelines, you hear me saying it's, it's like, hey, we've been here before. Right. This is exactly where we want to be. You know, just just even saying that and reminding the kids, hey, we've done this before. Right. You've done this a million times before. And one of the uh, kids that, you know, caught the game tying touchdown uh, uh, last week in the state championship game, he he wasn't supposed to be in that spot. Right. One of our kids got hurt. This kid goes in, right? But because, you know, he's not normally in that spot. He even said in the post-game interview, he was just like, we practiced it a hundred times already, right? So, so he wasn't nervous, right? He wasn't, he wasn't in that spot. He wasn't supposed to be there. But because we've practiced it so many times, it was just, it was easy for him, right? And so, you know, the preparation was there. And it was just like, man, like, there's a reason why we practice all of this. Well, there's a reason why we do all of the weird things that we do. Cause like you even said, right. Even for me as an athlete, there was always a rhyme or reason to it. Right. And so same thing with football, right. There's a rhyme or reason why we do a drill. There's a rhyme or reason why we call this play. Right. And so that's the biggest thing. I think this coaching in this day and age is like, you, you have to have an answer and you have to have the reason why, because kids want to know why, right. Kids are naturally curious and say, Hey, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Right. And so when you explain it to them, right, all coaching is, is teaching, right? The best coaches make the best teachers and vice versa. Because if you're able to teach a high school kid, a 13, 14, 15 year old kid, the process behind the why, they're going to understand that. And it'll be easier for them to understand, right? Because if you show them the why, it's like, oh, this is why we're doing this. That makes sense. Right. Because if they don't understand it, if they don't get it, they don't have confidence in the play. They don't have confidence in why we're doing it. But if they understand the reason why, it's like, oh, okay, I know why we're doing this. I often hear people complain about the generation coming behind us. 
When you think about it, it's kind of a tale as old as time, though. If you read about teaching and coaching the next generation, a lot of it surrounds the idea of helping them understand the why. This next generation is wanting to know why things are done the way they are and why things are the way they are. It should not be looked at as a weakness or even an annoyance. Helping this next generation understand the why helps them understand the greater picture. What excites you and has you excited for the future? I think obviously the biggest thing right now is, you know, Sarah and I are expecting a little boy. You know, I I think becoming a dad probably is the biggest thing that excites me right now. Seeing our family grow and, and seeing what type of dad I become. Um, you know, I say to Sarah all the time, I'm like, am I going to be a good dad? Am I going to be a good dad? And she was just like, you're going to be a good dad. She was just like, you'll be good. She was just like, I've seen you interact with my, my nephews. My brother's got two little boys. And she was like, I've seen how you act with them. You know, I've seen how you act with all of her younger cousins. When we first started dating, they were all babies at that point, you know? And she was just like, babies love you for whatever reason. Um, (laughs) She was like, you're the baby whisperer. Everybody says it. Right. And so I'm just like, what if I'm not the baby whisperer, you know? But I think that excites me the most right now, you know, cause it's, it's a new chapter, right? It's a new chapter and I don't think it's really going to hit me until I have him and I'm holding him in my hands, you know? And it's just like, man, this guy's real, right? She, Even Sarah says the same thing. And she's just like, she's like, I, she was like, I still can't believe this is real. She was like, I, I can't believe I have a baby growing inside of her. You know, I'm just like, I don't know. Like that—that that is the most exciting thing for me, right? It's just watching our family grow and you know seeing where life kind of takes us. Incredible, and you know, I—I I mean, I think everything we've talked about up till now just solidifies in my head that you should have no concerns about yourself as a father. I mean, you just—you're—you're <laughs> you're a, a person that just if there's a job to be done, you're going to step up to the plate and you're going to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, you're going to figure it out and then you're going to do it. And, and I, I just admire that about you and uh, I'm really you. inspired by you, by you Thank and the you. way that you do that. You know, it makes me think a little bit, Courtney and I talk about kids. That's, mm-hmm. that's still a, a kind of on the someday uh, train, but you know, I, I love kids. I've got, we've got nieces and nephews that we love hanging with and, the idea of us having the kid still makes me like extremely nervous. Was there anything you guys did to like prepare for the chapter of becoming parents? Uh, I don't think there's anything that we did that helped prepare us because we were trying for quite some time. We went through um, IVF and that's kind of the more that I kind of looked into that, the more that I found out it was common, you know, in this day and age. So there wasn't really anything that I like did to prepare myself for it, right? It's it's one of those things where if it happens, it happens. And when it happens, it'll happen. I think it's just the mental part of it is like preparing yourself to, to, to be a dad, to prepare yourself to, hey, what am I going to do in this situation, right? And it's, you know, you can say, oh, they don't make a handbook on how to raise a child, but they, 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 they make a handbook on how to raise... <laughs> 
for his kids. But everybody's everybody's path is different. Everybody's journey is different. Everybody's going to have different experiences. Right? And that's the one thing that, you know, we hear from our friends that have kids. And the one thing, one piece of advice that, you know, they've given us is that, you know, we can hear one advice from one couple and then another couple would be like, oh, this is what we did. Right? And it could be completely different than what the other couple said. So it's more or less taking everybody's recommendations and seeing what fits kind of our, what we want to do. Right. Cause again, like it's, 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 that's your child. It's like, that's, that's half me. It's half Sarah, you know? And it's like, I, I still kind of get like, like kind of, I, I don't know if a like giddy is the right, right word, but it's just like, it, it blows my mind a little bit. It's just like, Oh man, it's, it's a little me. You know, it's a little me, it's a little her, right? And so it's just like the, the well, we're hoping that like the best parts of me and the best parts of her are just in one little kind of baby. So, but but to answer your question, there's nothing that we really did to kind of prepare ourselves. It's it's more or less that journey of like, hey, we're in this together, right? And like, you know, being a new dad, being a new mom, it could get pretty overwhelming, right? When you really sit down and think about it. But it's more or less okay. You know, we're we're bringing a baby into this world, and it's my job for the next eighteen years to make sure that I raise this little guy and kind of instill in him, you know, the work ethic that you know I had, and show him all of the things in the world, show him what's right in the world, what's wrong in the world, you know, and, and make sure that you know he grows up to be a good man, right? Like, it's 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 one of those things where it's just like you have that responsibility and it, it makes you grow up a little bit. But at the same time, it's just like, you know, we're ready for this. Right. Well, I think we're ready for this. And it's, it's like, Hey, it's, it's, it's time to kind of move on to the next chapter of our lives, so to speak. And this is kind of the next thing to it. You mentioned that you guys have had to go the IVF route. What was that like going through that together? Did, did that, you know, you, you mentioned you won a, an award for perseverance in uh, skeleton. You know, it, it's uh, you, you've learned a lot of important things just through throughout your life and through sports. Um, but what was that like for you two to go through that just kind of different journey to get to this point? It was tough, right? It was tough because obviously, you know, I, I think it made me appreciate Sarah much more than I already did because of what she had to go through the medication that she had to take the the shots, you know, and I guess she could say the same about me because I had, I, I administered every single shot that she needed, right. Where, you know, she gets up in the morning to go to work. I got to give her a shot. Right. And I'm up in the morning to give her a shot. Right. Like I had to mix all the medication for her and draw out the medication with the needles, clean the, like clean the area that the shots need to go in. Like, the amount of you know medication that she needed to take, the amount of shots that she needed to take, the the amount of you know uh, weekly hospital visits that we had to go through, it's a journey, right? And it's a lot, right? It's a lot, but to do all of that to give ourselves a small chance at having a family, right? Just it just made me appreciate her, you know, so much more, right? and it just shows what she's willing to do. You know, to to have a chance at, to have a family, 
And, you know, I felt helpless at some times, right? Because, you know, they, they talk a lot about, you know, in IVF that it's all about the woman, right? It's all about the woman because she's taking all the shots and everything. But they don't really talk about the guys as much because, you know, it's like you're there and it's just like you're very helpless, right? And, and feel like you, you can't really do anything because I can't, right? I can't, I can't take the shots for her, right? I wish I was able to. But there was only so much that I could do, right? And I know that she felt like, oh, it's her fault. It's her fault. It's her fault, right? And I was there to be like, hey, it's it's just unexplained, right? That's what it was. It was unexplained fertility for us where there was real no answer. It was just unexplained, which was probably the most frustrating part because we, you would rather have like a specific reason why, you know, we couldn't conceive. But when they came back and just say, hey, it's just unexplained, it was just like, oh, man, like, I just wish you would just say, this is the exact reason, you know? And I was lucky, you know, I, I had one of my former college teammates. He had posted, I think when we had first started the IVF journey, he had posted something about how his, his wife had just gotten pregnant and they went the IVF route. So I had reached out to him, you know, and I was explained, I was like, hey, we're just starting this process. Like, you know, what can you tell me, right? Like, what advice you can give? And he just pretty much said, you know, be there for her. Right. And, you know, and he even said the same thing. Like they don't talk about, you know, the guys as much because I did feel helpless. I, I felt like I couldn't do anything for her, but it was just be there for her, do every, do anything that she needs, do anything that she asks. Right. And, Cause that goes a long way. And like Sarah says all the time to people like, Hey, like she wouldn't have been able to do this without me because, you know, she wouldn't have been able to give herself her own injections. Like she's like that scared her. It might be, it might be a little tiny thing, but for me to do the injections for her, like that was a big thing for her. And, you know, there, there were obviously bad days, right? There are bad days where she comes home and she would have like a mental breakdown. And, you know, that's, that's why I was there, right? I was there to hug her, tell her that it was okay. Right. And, and that falls back and just kind of being there for her. Right. And I, I think that was probably one of the toughest parts, you know, cause like you said, like I, I felt, like I couldn't do anything for her, but just kind of being there, being the support that she needed, you know, I didn't miss a single appointment because I knew that, Hey, like if she's going to go to appointment, I'm going to go to. Right. And same thing with kind of every appointment up until now, it's been, okay, I'll pick you up. We'll go together. Right. it's like, I'm not going to miss anything. Right. And, and I think that's the biggest thing, right. Cause you know, we're in this together and to, something simple as going to appointments together, you know, like she takes a train in, in the morning, you know, on, and on the days where she has appointments, I get up in the morning and I drive her to the train station at 5am. So, so she doesn't have to drive herself because she knows that I'm going to pick her up at whatever train station that she needs to go to the doctor's appointment. Right. So little things like that, where it's like, Hey, like we have our routine, right. We know what we're going to do to kind of work through whatever hospital visits, doctor's visits, whatever we need. Right. It's just, and it got to a point where it's just like, Hey, this is what we do. Right. And, it, and like, again, like everybody's journey is different. Uh, and we got lucky that, you know, our very first, uh, round of IVF resulted, you know, in her getting pregnant. So, you know, we were happy with that. So you go through this journey, the good days and the bad and, and, um, I think regardless of length of time or number of rounds, like this is the kind of journey that can 
for sure add to strain on a relationship or uh, cause you guys to bend or, you know, unfortunately for some relationships probably even break. But like, how did you guys stay united in it? You know, what, what would you say are some of the keys for getting through that kind of a journey together as one? I think we were, we always looked at the end goal and reminded ourselves why, right? Sometimes that's obviously a lot easier said than done to say, Hey, it'll all be worth it. It'll all be worth it. Right. Because, you know, we're trying to, you know, lift each other up. We're trying to remind ourselves or remind each other, you know, why we're doing this. Right. And, you know, obviously sometimes that is hard to hear, right. Because, and we become so goal oriented, right? And the goal was, hey, let's have a baby. But every single time things would fail or whatever, it's just like, why am I doing this? And it's just like, hey, let's just remember why we're doing this, right? What What's the end goal, right? And our end goal is to to, to have a baby, right? And and I would say, right, this is gonna this is gonna be this is gonna be worth it, you know. At the end of it, you know, in a year's time, we have we're holding a baby. Right. And so, you know, getting through those kind of negative days, right, those those bad moments and just as a kind of reset and you know, refocus ourselves on why we're doing it all. You know, it is hard to hear sometimes because you have that doubt in your mind where it's just like, is it going to happen? And it's just like, hey, let's let's will it into existence. Right. And especially towards the end, I think she she had said something where she saw on TikTok. Of course, she saw on TikTok and it was just like these girls saying, hey, you know, it always works out for us, right? Like the girl just kept saying, it always works out for us, right? And that became like the running joke in like March and April when we were kind of waiting to to see if like the the process went well. And we were just saying, hey, it always works out for us, right? It always works out for us, right? And so... And lo and behold, it, you know, it, it always works out for us, right? Obviously, there were some scares and stuff like that, you know, through the entire pregnancy, right? Because I even tell her, I was just like, you know, every, every time we have something bad happens, you know, we always just say, you know, one, it always works out for us. And, and two, this entire journey wasn't easy, right? Why else would this be? Why else would this go this way, right? We've been through so much already, what's another roadblock, right? What's another bump in the road, right? So it's just like, you know, it, it, if, if God didn't think you can handle, you know, all the roadblocks, all the adversity that he puts you through, you know, he wouldn't think that you couldn't handle it. Right. And so, you know, I think that's, that, that's been a thing where it's just like, he's putting you through that because you can handle it. Right. We, we've been through so much already so many, so many problems, so many adversities, everything that goes wrong, we've been through it, but you go through it because you can handle it and it's just going to make you stronger at the end of it. Yeah, it's incredible. And so it always works out for us. You guys <laughs> yeah. find out that, uh, you, that, that Sarah's pregnant, that it, that it did work out. What was that like for you guys? That day was it. It, it was, I would say it was pretty emotional, but it was also like a big relief, but also like, oh my God, like it's actually happening, you know? Um, 
it was, it was a lot of different emotions just because it was just like, man, we, we, we did all that we went through. We did everything to get to this point. Right. So, you know, now she's pregnant. It's like, okay. I think they say it's like the 12 week, the 12 week mark where it's just like, okay, like it's, it's a bit, it's, it's like a fetus, but then the 20, the 20 week mark, it's like, okay, like the, I think every week the percentages of like the, the pregnancy lasting goes a little bit further down. Right. And it becomes more viable. And so in my head, I'm looking at the weeks. I'm like, okay, at this week, the percentages go up where it's the baby stays and then it goes up, it goes up, it goes up. And I'm just counting down those weeks. And I'm just like, man, like we got to get to this week. We got to get to that week. Um, it, it was stressful, right? It was stressful. But like I said, like I said, like it always works out, right? We, we just kind of keep alluding to, Hey, it always worked out for us. And now you guys got a little baby on the way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it, it's been a long, a long journey, right? It's been a long, long journey, you know, like little things that you don't really think that are important. It's just like, Hey, we got to get the crib ready. We got to get, you know, we got to get the, um, the nursery ready, right? We got to pick colors for this, pick colors for that. Right. So it's like a lot of things that go into it. And it's just like, I think I told her, I was like, probably the most stressful part of this entire process is going to be when they discharge us and they're just like, all right, you're free to go home. And it's going to be like, man, that's going to be the slowest car ride home ever because it's just going to be like, what do we do now? It's just like, here, here you go. Like, here's a baby, go home and I'll raise it for the next 18 years of your life. You came into this building, just two of you. And now there's a third human just leaving with you. Exactly. It's just like a wild thought. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy to think of. It's just like you walk in with two and you're walking, you're leaving with three. And now it's just like, what do we do now? You know, um, it's, it's nerve wracking a little bit. It's nerve wracking, but I know that, you know, once we get to that point, it'll all work out, you know, and, and we'll, we'll figure out our own way. You know, we have a lot of help around us, you know, our support group is, is, is great, you know, and it'll be, it'll be a very, very special moment when, you know, he's finally here. And I looked at the calendar today and I'm like, Oh my God, it's like four weeks, four weeks from now. I'm just like, yikes uh not not yikes but like it's gonna happen soon like like it could happen any minute any moment you know um and even last week at at our uh, the state championship game sarah was every stressful game that we've had she says like the baby goes crazy like (laughs) baby's kicking and all that stuff and she was like she was like i thought i was gonna go into labor and i was like please don't do that during a football game (laughs) Um, but it, the timing of everything worked out, right? The timing of everything worked out because, you know, now football is over. I'll have four weeks off until to get ready for the baby to get here. You know, our house is just about done. We'll be moving into that very, very soon, you know? And so, like I said, right, there's a lot of change that's going to be happening soon, but I wouldn't want any other way. Well, Jimmy, Thanks for being on the show. We have just a few more questions left. This is this is the point in the show where we just talk a little bit more about you and um, ask you some more direct questions. Question one, I ask everybody, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? 
I think what makes me happy is seeing the people that I love around me happy. I, I think I've always been a type of person that I'd like to please others. Right? And it's always been, how can I make people around me happy? How can I make, how can I do things for them? Right. That's just how I've always been. And when people ask me, what can I do for you? It's always like, Oh, nothing. You're good. You're fine. Right. Like I'll always figure it out myself. Right. I'll, I worry about others more than I worry about myself sometimes. And that could be a downfall of mine sometimes um, because I generally worry about other people's happiness more often than I do mine. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're a servant. You are definitely somebody who likes to take care of and, and serve others and are, yeah, certainly more focused on the people around you and making them better. Um, I feel like that's been a theme all through this conversation. Question two that I ask everybody, uh, I think vulnerability and getting uncomfortable, putting yourself in situations like that is where a lot of growth happens and comes from and, and discomfort is a, a good thing we should all practice once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, what is something that makes you feel vulnerable? When I am not in control, right? And like you said, right, like I, I like to be in control of a lot of things that, you know, we've kind of already alluded to. Um, and so when I can't control something, that makes me feel very, very vulnerable, very, very anxious. Like <laughs> something simple, like when I'm, we're putting away dishes, right? And Sarah puts them away differently. I'm like, oh God, like that make like, this, this, this is supposed to go here. That's supposed to go there. Right. Like that makes me vulnerable and it's a little tiny thing, but it's just like, man, I don't have control over it. Like there's anything. And it's just like, man, like I'd rather be in control. I'm very, very like very detail oriented. So it's just like when something doesn't go my way and probably again, a downfall of mine, it, it, it causes me stress. And it's just like, oh man, like I would do it this way. Right. But again, right. Like it's, there's a million ways to skin a cat. And so when I, I definitely is one of my downfalls, but when something doesn't go my way and I don't have control over it, that definitely makes me feel vulnerable. Like, Oh man, like I could do a better job. But again, right. It's, that's one thing that just makes me feel like I don't have control over when, and, and it makes me feel vulnerable. And it's just like, Oh man, like somebody else is controlling this for me because I'd rather be in control. Yeah, I think um, I think that's just like the other side of the coin of, you know, when you're a high level athlete like you were and you are controlling all of the controllables, you know, where you set your gloves down after a run, you know, where your shoes go, where your helmet goes. Um, when you practice that level of detail and organization, um, yeah, it, it's... Uh, I think um, that's just the other side of of that is is when things are out of out of your control, um, it's going to make you just feel that much more vulnerable just because yeah. you practice that much attention to the details you can. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where you know I I, I tell my kids you know control what we can control and forget the things that we can't. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's like things that we can control, yeah, control them. And things that you can't, right? All right, that's water on the bridge, right? We can't really control that, right? Don't, why waste time trying to worry about that, right? And, you know, I should probably listen to my own advice 
um, you know, <laughs> sometimes when I'm, you know, saying some of these things or, you know, preaching to it, but you know, it's that there is some truth to it. You know, there is some truth to it because when you start worrying about things that you can't physically control, you're wasting mental energy, you're causing yourself stress. And it's one of those things that, you know, could be detrimental, you know, kind of to you. Yeah. The only thing you can control is just how you react and respond to those situations. You, there's definitely way more in our life that we can't control, but, um, yeah, I think you take care of the things you can. And, uh, when it's stuff that you, you can't control, you just take care of how you yeah. respond and react and how you let things go. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've come to the last question. It's kind of the big one title of the show. What are you looking for? I'm looking for purpose. Right? I said it before, right? I think I'm looking for a purpose to find a reason why I'm here, um, you know, to make an impact, right? And to, to leave this, this earth better than I found it, right? To leave whatever place that I'm in, whatever environment that I'm in better than when it was when, before I was there, you know? And I, and I think, I think that answer is, can, can be revisited over and over again because you can find your purpose. And then once you get there, it's like, okay, what's the next step, right? What, what's the next purpose of why I'm here, right? So it's not just like one thing where you answer and then you're done, right? But that answer just keeps on growing and growing and growing. And then as that answer grows, right, you also grow, you know? So, you know, you can ask yourself that every single month and you can get a different answer every month, right? And that's the beauty of kind of, when you're asking yourself, you know, you're looking for purpose, it can change, right? So, you know, right now it's like I'm looking for purpose and kind of being the best dad I can be, right? But then six months from then, you know, my purpose is going to be a little bit different. And then six months from that, it'll be different again, right? So, you know, that that answer is kind of changing depending on where you are in life and where you are and that's, I think that's the beauty of that when I really started thinking about, you know, what I'm looking for. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think sometimes when we ask, uh, what our purpose is, we think about it as in terms of once I find one answer, that's going to be, that's the answer for life. And, mm -hmm. um, I think it's, a yeah, you just provoked a lot of thought in, in me and that, that, uh, in, in consideration that, uh, yeah, that one's going to be seasonal. And, and, uh, it's going to kind of continuously shift and change and, um, to, to get okay with that. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate the heck out of you, man. It was really good to reconnect. And, um, yeah, I think we're going to have to talk about a road trip or something. Absolutely. Real soon, especially no, I once this little it. guy comes on the way. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. I was excited. I was I was very very excited when you asked me to, you know, if I would be willing to be a guest on it. And I was just like, absolutely, right. One, it gives us the ability to reconnect, and two, you know, anything that I can do to help you out, you know, that that would be a, a huge thing. That again, like you know, that's a common theme, right? Helping others around me, um, you know, especially the ones that have kind of helped me along the way. Well, thanks for that, Jimmy. You have. Definitely left my life better than you found it. So thank you for all the lessons you've taught me as an athlete and person and a friend. So uh, really great to reconnect with you. We'll have to do this more 
not for a podcast, but uh, <laughs> maybe we'll we'll get together in a year or so again to chat and see where things are at. Absolutely. All right, brother. All right. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. Peace. I want to thank Jimmy for coming on the show. He is such a good dude, and I'm glad that I got to catch up with him and you got to hear from him. Having lived with Jimmy for a few years and just lived around him, I can tell you that he is certainly living out that value of leaving it better than you found it. Definitely has me thinking. What would it be like if if I and you and all of us just started leaving things just a little bit better than we found it? I don't know. Worth trying, though. So this week, let's go out and leave it a little bit better than we found it. Thanks a lot for listening. And we'll see you in the new year when we've got some more exciting shows. See you then. What Are You Looking For with Mike Terry is written and produced by me, Mike Terry. One man band here. Our theme song is by Paper Twins, and it's called Standing on Your Own. All of our music is sourced from Epidemic Sound. There is a link in the description below. 